Good to see everyone this morning. It's uh, always a pleasure to get together. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, the text that was just, uh, just read, and we're going to take a look at, at this particular letter uh, to the church at Sardis. These particular letters have uh, challenged me a lot, and I hope they have challenged you as well. Uh, if you have not had a chance to hear all of these, uh, I would urge you to go back online and, and listen to them so that we all together have, have the same motivation to be able to improve ourselves, both as individuals and, and as a church. There are uh, two letters among the seven letters that are given to the uh, churches in Asia Minor. Two of those letters, Jesus, when he begins, immediately goes to the point of exposing the flaws of the church without any mention of things that they have done good or saying that they have done anything good. He doesn't bother with that, and that is the church at Sardis that we studied this morning and then the church at Laodicea, which is the last of these. As we look at this, it, it brings two questions uh, that come, should challenge each of our minds. One is con just concerning us as a church. Are we dead or alive? Jesus starts this, this letter with simply saying, I know your works and that you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. And so the, the, the statement urges us, obviously, to think in terms of us. Are we dead or are we alive? And then the next thing that it challenges with is, are, are, in, are you personally dead spiritually? Are you personally alive spiritually? Uh, those, are the thing, those are the questions that, that ought to uh, just strike us very, very strongly in this particular letter. Before we think in terms, though, of just looking at the letter overall, concentrate for a moment just on that word, dead. You have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. What does Jesus mean? Obviously, he's not talking about you're physically dead. These people get up every Sunday and come and worship together. These people do all the things that you might expect that a church would do. They come and, and they sing as we have sung. They take the Lord's Supper as we have taken. They pray together. They contribute to God's cause as is important, as needed, and as is opportune at that time. Uh, they listen to a lesson and study together. They do all the things that we have done this morning. They, they certainly appear to be, in every way, a church that is following Christ. So much so that even people who would come and visit this church go away going, Wow, this, is a, this, is, this church is really alive. This church is really doing good. They, they are doing great. And yet, Jesus sees something entirely different. As he looks at this church, he is seeing a people who are in grave danger of losing their soul. That ought to be really shocking to us. In fact, in, uh, when you get on down in verse 5, he actually says, 
if you will conquer and overcome, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Just that saying is indicating that you're in the condition right now that your name could be blotted out of the book of life. So how do you see? How do we all see? Our approach as Christians before God. It isn't whether or not you're here primarily. That's not the idea. You could be here all the time. He never says anything about the way they are living as far as anything immoral. Doesn't seem to be. He, had, he, had, he indicted the other churches for immorality. There's no Jezebel in the church at Sardis. There's no one in the church at Sardis that is holding on to the, to the uh, doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There's no one in Sardis who's dealing with the doctrine of Balaam who, who deceived others. There's no one in there teaching something that's false. He doesn't say anything about that. He just simply says, you're dead. You're absolutely dead. What a grave warning he gives. We've talked a lot about, and we'll continue to talk about, God's assurances to us of our salvation. And we need to see that assurance then cause us to give our all to Him. That's the motivation because of what He's done. It is misappropriated to look at God's assurances and think that He's going to tolerate, tolerate us as Christians just being dead or asleep, as he is refer, will refer to later on. So let's talk a little bit about how this plays out so we can understand it and make a good, uh, a good application to our lives. First and foremost, Jesus begins, as he does with all the letters, with a self-identification. In every case, this self-identification in some way relates back to the vision that we saw in chapter 1 where Jesus is described. In this case, part of this self-identification is exactly like the identification he gave to the church at Ephesus. But he adds one thing. He says the words of, of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He adds this phrase, he has the sp seven spirits of God. As usual, when Jesus gives a self-identification, in somehow it applies to the church to whom he is writing. There is something about what they're doing wrong that fits his identification. In this case, the seven spirits of God. He has the seven spirits of God. We know from chapter 1 and from Isaiah chapter 11, this would refer to the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sent the Spirit in John chapter 16. He sent the Spirit in order to have the words of the Spirit revealed to all mankind. In Ephesians 4.12, amazing verse that we most of, most Christians know fairly well. The Word of God, sharp, powerful, as any two-edged sword, piercing even to the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we study the scriptures, when you read, maybe you have times in the day when you read the Bible and you take time to read. Hooray for you. 
But when that's done, something in what you read should penetrate to the thoughts and intents of your heart. And the reason that's so important is because the verse prior to that in Hebrews 4 says, He knows every single thing about you and there's nothing hidden. And the reason he ties together, the word of God will penetrate to the thoughts and intents of your heart. He's saying, because I know those thoughts and intents, and you have to know the word of God well enough that you can adjust your thoughts and intents and your actions to his and what he knows about you. And get that right. And that's exactly what's going on here with the church of Sardis. They apparently aren't going to that next level and all around believe that the church at Sardis is just a great church. But Jesus sees something entirely different. He knows better. Imagine, if you will, what it looked like to Christians outside of the Sardis church. I don't know if they had some gospel meetings or had things like that, but we know from the book of Acts that different brethren traveled in different places and traveled around, and just as we often do today, there were, out, there were people from other uh, churches that came and spoke to these churches. And what they saw looked great. What do you think they saw? You visit other congregations. You evaluate them by a moment of worship with them. What do you think they saw that would cause them to say, man, that's really a great church? I would think people were really personable. They were really nice. They connected with others. The worship was strong and powerful. The public part of it looked good. Does that make it good? No, it didn't. That's what's interesting about this. Human beings looked at it and said, it's great. Jesus looked at it and said, you're dead. Wow. This really impacted me as I, as I thought about and studied those particular things. What is Jesus seeing when he describes them as dead? Now, that was the next question that came in my mind. Well, what, Lord, what are you seeing that would describe this church as being dead? So I thought, well, okay. How did he originally describe the seven churches of Asia in the vision that we saw in chapter 1? How did he describe them? He described them as lampstands. Lampstands came from the picture of the holy place in the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and those lamps were, were, were burning bright all the time, and they were always having the priests come in and renew the oil and burn these lamps. And they pictured later what God's churches would be. They would shine light. They would be lamps. Jesus even said it when he described the, to his, the disciples, his disciples, in, in the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew with Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. 
And there's numerous passages quoting this from the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, on how God has made Jesus and then made those followers of Jesus lights to the world to bring salvation to the end of the earth, quote-unquote, Isaiah 49, 6. And then Paul repeats that in Acts 13 in one of his sermons and says God has commanded us to be a light to the world and bring salvation to the end of the earth. Even though the original quotation was mainly referring to Jesus, we now see that this was Him producing us as an offspring to be lampstands so that God's light would shine. You are the light of the world. I would imagine most everyone here at some time in your life has been, have gone camping. Uh, what's the best part of camping? Yay, a campfire. <laughs> you haven't camped without a campfire. And it's nothing like it, and you get your marshmallows out and all that. Nothing tastes better than a melted marshmallow. So, and a little crispy on the edges. Really great. And what has to happen? Somebody has to tend to the fire, and it just eventually starts going out. It starts fizzling down. And, we, oh, man, we've we're, we're we got to get, get something going here. And we try to keep that flame. One of the things that Jesus said to this church is, you need to remember what you were. Somebody had to remember at the campfire what the campfire used to be when it gets down to just withering, smoking coals. And has to be something has to be done about it. Jesus said in the fourth chapter of the book of Mark, in verse 21, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on the stand? This is the whole point of this is so that there's light. Light is, is extremely important. And if it is not for us, this is so striking. If it is not for us, there is no light in the world. That's it. It has to come from us. We are the light bearers. And when he says you're dead, the flame has gone out. It's obvious. This is what is really going on here. In verse 5, Jesus makes the statement, the one who conquers, I will confess his name before my Father. Does that remind you of anything that Jesus said while he was on the earth? I think most of you would pop right in your minds. But let's take a look at it. Look over in Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, and notice how Jesus reminds the disciples about who they are and what they have to confront as they go out into the world. Matthew 10, verse 25. Jesus in this particular uh, text is giving one of his great discourses uh, in the book of Matthew. And as he transitions, transitions from talking to the apostles, he then transitions to talking to all disciples. In verse 25, he says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher." And the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, 
<coughs> or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. The older versions actually use the word confess there. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a whole sermon just in that text. But notice quickly and briefly just some of the highlights of what he gives in the text. First, Jesus just simply says, let's, let's get something squared away in your mind. They maligned me, they're going to malign you. Accept it, embrace it, grab hold of it and say, this is what life is going to be. It doesn't mean everybody's going to malign you. It doesn't mean even necessarily mean a majority at all times will malign you. But you will be maligned because they maligned Jesus. And here's the really key to that. In Mark 8 and verse 38, he says, Whoever is ashamed of me, and he adds one phrase, Who is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of. You know, you can walk around all you want and say you believe in Jesus, and very few people are going to give you a hard time. But when you start citing some of the things that is contrary to what's going on in this society, yeah, that's when the bombs start going off. You cannot, we cannot be ashamed of anything about Jesus, about his words or anything. That's what he said for us to do. And then he said, don't have any fear of them. Everything's going to be revealed one day. It's all going to be exposed. This isn't going to be brushed under the carpet. I'm going to take care of this. It will all be revealed. Do not be afraid of them. And what you hear in the dark, proclaim on the housetops. I thought that was an interesting statement. What you hear in the dark, go whisper it to somebody else. <laughs> he says, no, proclaim on the housetops. Be open about it. And then he says, they're going to kill you? Don't, don't be afraid if somebody's going to kill you. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You need to be afraid of that. Be afraid of this. That's not a problem. And everyone who confesses me, this is exactly what Jesus said in the letter to the church at Sardis. So what's the theme What's the lampstand? What's the church? Why are they dead? You're not confessing me. Thematic through the book of Revelation. Over and again, he keeps speaking of this. 
and we're not bringing peace. Christmas time, we sing songs about peace. And there was a peace that Jesus brought, a peace between God and man. And Jesus in this context says, there's a peace that I didn't bring. I didn't bring a peace that would be between all mankind. Because even a father is going to turn against his son, and a son against his father, a mother against her daughter. He says, the enemies will be those of your own household at times. And then he says, you cannot love father or mother, son or daughter more than me and be worthy of me. My experience that part of the text is the hardest one for newer Christians and weaker Christians to obey. When it comes to family, family will get placed first over Jesus and over what it means to serve Jesus. And he says, You cannot do that. You got to love your family, you got to do everything you're supposed to do for your family. But Jesus is number one. And whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we exemplify that by how we act throughout our lives. And then he even says, you're not worthy of him unless you take up your cross and you lose your life for me. There's more in that text we could talk about, but there's a powerful emphasis then on what Jesus is saying that it means to be his disciple before the world. All of these things tie together to be what a what Jesus describes as a church when he says, I'm holding the seven lampstands in my hand. This is who they are. They are light bearers. They are light shiners uh, before the world. <clears throat> If a church is dead, simply put, its lamp no longer burns. That's dead. We even say that. Campfire goes out. Somebody says the fire's dead. (laughs) Fire's out. It's done. No heat, no light. That's it. It's lost its purpose. It's lost why it is put there. It becomes then a religious social club. Everybody loves to be together, but the light is not shining. This principle is not a surprise to anyone who's a student of the Old Testament. If you've been here very long, you've heard me give whole lessons showing Old Testament text that remind us of what we are to be. Just the very promise to Abraham that through your offspring all nations will be blessed. And then Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 29, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Through you all nations will be blessed is the picture. I'd like you to think for a moment about what took place in the 19th and first part of the 20th century. You know, I was there. It's been a long time ago, but... uh, (laughs) No, I've read a lot about it. Read a lot of of history in this. 
And I remember some of it in the first part. That still was first, just, just teetering over into the second part of the, second, of the 20th century. But during that time, do you know what churches talked about all the time? They talked about it all the time. You can read it in books that were written. You can read it in lecture books of, of various colleges. You could never have a lectureship. And at least one or two lessons in lectureship would be about how can we reach more lost souls. It enveloped everybody's thought. It was part of how everybody was thinking about. And there was work constantly being done in order to facilitate one more soul being saved. My uncle, uh, Mac Kirchival, died. Uh, my aunt gave me most all of his books. And it was just interesting to look at how many books that were written back in the 19th century that he had and in the first part of the 20th century and how fast the Lord's churches were growing during that time because everybody's working on it. Everybody's thinking about it. I remember that. And I do not see it anymore. It isn't even a footnote in what many churches even speak of or think about. Growth is defined by how many members move in, not by how many lost souls were saved. I'll tell you what, we need to remember something. It wouldn't matter if people are hanging out the windows. We've got so many people in here. That has nothing at all to do with whether or not we're doing our job in reaching another lost soul. These people who don't know Jesus and are not doing what Jesus said are lost forever. Jacob went and blew it to pieces Wednesday night when he went and led the song, You Never Mentioned Him to Me. Drew and I were talking about it afterwards, and we were just going, I'm kicked in the gut because it's not a, not a one of us who doesn't sing that and say, I did that. I know somebody that I knew every day and saw them every day. And I never mentioned him to that person. I am scared to death to see him on the day of judgment. We're a light. We're a lampstand. And being the light of the world is, one of, is, is the main purpose that we get. In verse 4, you will notice the words. He says, you have a few names that haven't soiled their garments, for they are worthy. And I want you now to concentrate a bit on this word worthy here. We just, when, when you read the word, you'll see it over and again in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5 and verse 9, Jesus is counted worthy because he gave up his life. In verse 12, same thing. Jesus is counted worthy because he was slain and he gave up his life for the salvation of mankind. 
We read just a second ago in Matthew 10 and verse 38 that whoever takes up his cross and follows him is worthy, and if they do not take up their cross and follow, they are not worthy of him. These individuals here, the Sardis church, must have just maintained such a low profile. Did you notice? There's no mention of persecution. All these places are, are, have persecution. All these places have their, their emperor worship and their, and their unions that, that, that to worship their gods. But there's no mention of it. And you can only imagine. This is a church who just takes this inward look at just us and doing things that make us comfortable. We must remember, when Jesus went into the house of Zacchaeus, as the song goes, the wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Savior for to see. And Jesus said, come down, for today I'm going to dine with you. And we think that's such a cute story. But it's the other, the end of the story that's so important. Because when the man repents and tells Jesus how he's going to give his life up, and it's going to start with how he's cheated people, and he's going to go back and pay fourfold of what he's cheated others and how he's going to live for him. Jesus said, salvation has now come to this house, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save those who are lost. He stopped his entire day, picked out one man, and said, I need to talk to you. Because I'm not going to let it be said to me that I never mentioned him to you. That's the way it was. Now, consider what he said. Wake up, remember, keep it, and repent. <laughs> Think of these words. And if Jesus said to you, you are dead. And there's only one person that can identify that and know that, and that's you personally. If he said to you, you are dead, would you wake up? That's a challenging question. You're dead. Are we going to wake up? And so here's what he did. He says, your works aren't complete. We talked about that a little bit this morning in our class in 1 Thessalonians. That, that he told the Thessalonians, there's more you need to be doing. You're doing well, but you have more to do. You, your works need to be completed. There's parts of your life that you have not gone to the, to the next level. And that's what needs to happen here. Remember. Remember where you were. Remember and keep it. This is the reason we need to study hard, because if we forget, goodness, some, I, I told somebody the other day, there have been times when I preached a sermon and three months later I'm thinking, you know, there's a lesson I really need to give, and I started thinking about it, and I went, wait a minute, I did give that. <laughs> I made a whole sermon. I was getting ready to write a sermon on it, and I realized we forget. Things. Now, don't go talking about my age, but we forget things. That's the way it is. Repent. The hardest commandment in the whole world is repent. Because that means to, I've got to change. This is something we men laugh about among ourselves. It's like the sign at the beginning of an old Kansas road, choose your rut, you'll be in it for 40 miles. We're somewhat like that as, as men. We just like our rut. 
Don't mess it up. But in our spiritual lives, that cannot happen. Change is extremely difficult. What, what do you think in your life, my life, what, if it's missing, what, what exactly usually has to change? Time. Time. What we devote our time to. I cannot love other things more than Him. I have to devote my time to Him. That's almost always the case. There's, of course, other things, as he mentions. But that is almost always the case. I need to change what I'm doing with my time. I'm not devoting my time to Him. Everything else starts falling in place once I'm giving myself completely to Him. And then you notice Jesus' words in the very last. He says, if you do not wake up, I will come against you. I'm going to come like a thief in the night, and I'm going to come against you. And I'm persuaded here, he's not talking about the end of time. He's not talking about the second coming. He's saying just like the, the way he would come in the destruction of Jerusalem. I'm coming and I'm going to do something to you. And I'm like, what are you going to do? Or, like my mother said, you don't want to find out. <laughs> I'm coming. Jesus is serious. In each of these churches, he's serious about that. Folks, I'd like to think about something for a second, but a church that ignores its mission is worse than no church at all. You know why? Because a church that's ignored its mission is teaching everybody in it that you're just fine, and this is what a Lord's church ought to be. And you get used to it, and you raise children that get used to it, and they raise children that get used to it, and pretty soon, you think you'd call that church a lampstand, a light? No. It's worse than no church at all because it leaves an example for future generations of something that is unknowable in Scripture. It's just not the case. Final thing I want you to see. Those final words, he uses them in every ending of every letter the one who conquers and then goes on the one who conquers now i've avoided this in each of the lessons before but i want you to see what he means by the one who conquers and that's our final point here it is extremely interesting if you're reading some of the older versions it's the one who overcomes either way that's exactly what he's talking about the one who conquers and the one who overcomes each of the seven churches concludes with these promises. The cool thing about it is if you add up, and I had it on a slide and I decided not to use it because I knew we'd go over time. So you have all these promises. If you looked at the end of every one, they're amazing promises. White garment in this one. You, you, I'm, I'm going to just do all this for you. It is amazing the promises that God has made in each of this. But the overcoming and the conquering must happen before the inheritance of the promises. That's a simple statement. But in every letter, you have to conquer. Hmm. You have to conquer. 
It's not, that's not easy. You have to win the battle we're in. You have to conquer. So here's what's unique. What you see in Revelation is that when, you, when we testify and we conquer sin, we get conquered by the world, by humans. In chapter 11, verse 7, just take a quick journey with me. In chapter 11 and verse 7, he says, And when they have finished their testimony, he's talking about righteous people, two witnesses who are representing the righteous. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. When you conquer with your testimony, when you conquer with your light and your stand, you get conquered. The beast rises up out of the bottomless pit. Of course, in this case, he's talking about the Roman Empire. And they conquer in chapter 13 and verse 7. He says, also we'll take, it, it was allowed, again, the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. <laughs> so using the word conquer in Revelation in both ways. Christians conquering, and when Christians conquer, then the humans on earth that hate Jesus rise up and conquer the Christians. And that keeps happening over and over again in the text until you begin to realize it's one way or another. And it's not just whether or not you're testifying, whether or not you're confessing Him. In the sins of the five churches, many of them were, He complimented them for their faithful endurance and that they testified. But their sins were keeping the testimony from accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish. You can't have a Jezebel in the church and people following her and be able to testify about Christ. You simply can't have people who are teaching the doctrine of Balaam and be able to testify about Christ. And so he says both sides of these are very important. Look quickly how he defines what it means to conquer. In chapter 12, we've referenced this a number of times, verse 10 and 11, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Jesus throws Satan down. He's the accuser who accuses us all the time. He casts him down. But then verse 11, he says, And they have conquered him. Jesus conquers him, and he says, Now you can conquer. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even to death. The very opposite of what Jesus was warning against back in Matthew chapter 10. In chapter 15 and verse 2, you see it again. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass. Here is the end result of Christians who've conquered then the beast. And then in 13 and verse 7, as we just mentioned, uh, the same kind of conquering that was done. <coughs> in Romans, Paul refers to it. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. <coughs> we are, <coughs> excuse me, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then at the close of the book of Revelation, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, but the cowardly, and the faithless, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All the way through this great letter, Jesus is making a warning. You must conquer. And you conquer by the word of your testimony and loving not your lives, even to death, through the powerful blood of Jesus. And in the end, he says, the cowardly and faithless are not going to be there. I know your works, Jesus said. Churches are made up of individuals. And the church at Sardis, most of the individuals were dead. They had lost their light which made the whole church in the same way. So each of us individually must do as the Lord has asked us to do. Sleeping Sardis needed to wake up and overcome. The question is, are we going to wake up and overcome? If we need to wake up, there needs some awakening to be done. Each of us individually has to do that. And we try as a church to encourage one another, but that's the job. We're going to sing a song right now, and... As we sing, all of us, please consider, and throughout this week, let's consider, what is it we need to change, to conquer, as individuals, as a congregation? And if we can help you in any way, you're not a Christian, you need to come to Christ, you know what you need to do, giving your life up to Him, repenting of past sins, being buried with Him in baptism and raise up to walk a brand new life. He'll forgive you, and you'll be on the path to glory. We'd be glad to help you with that. All together we stand while we sing.